you know, every now and then you just realize that uh, musically and spiritually we are at a pl- point where we've sung songs, but we need to have that prayer on our lips that says, change me, start me. And so I wanted to sing that because I want this service, this message to change you like it's changed me this week. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 18. We are going through the book of Acts chapter by chapter. We've been having a great time. We're calling it the Church of Fire. What happened in the early church when the church just began to explode with growth and, and, and people were being changed in their hearts and in their lives? What happened in that church? How did that happen? And today we're talking about recovering our first love. You remember your first love? You ever have a first love? I fell in love at 12 years old. 12 years old, I walked into a French store called Jacques Penet. That's J.C. Penney, okay? And there it was, three-speed English racer, black, $49. Woo! Of course, there was a lot of tax at that point. I think there was 2% tax that you had to pay on top of that 49 bucks. It was shortly before my 12th birthday, and I went to my mom and my dad, and I said, I found what I want for my birthday. It's $49. And my dad said, son, are you crazy? We don't spend that kind of money on you for your birthday. But the money from my mom and my dad and my two grandmothers came up to just a little over $20. And he said, if you want that bicycle bad enough, you can go and you can start mowing lawns. You can use the family lawnmower, the push mower, but you have to pay for your own gas. And I said, Dad, gas is 19 cents a gallon. How can I make any money doing that? You think I'm kidding. That's actually what it cost then. I was 12 years old. And I was getting a buck a lawn to mow the lawns. And in three weeks, I had my $49, and I found my first love, my bicycle. I wore the tires off of it the first year. I had to get a new set of tires. Not tubes, tires. I literally wore the tires off of it. I fell in love with it. How about your first love? I, I love this quote. I found this on, the first, on first love. How on earth can one explain in terms of chemistry and physics so important a biological phenomena as first love. You know who said that? Albert Einstein. First love. It's not about biology, and it's not about physics, and it's not about chemistry. It's about falling in love. And today we're going to look at where Paul talks about a church that fell in love with Jesus Christ, the church in Ephesus. And he went to Ephesus, and in chapter 18, he goes to Corinth and then to Ephesus. And when he goes there, the people are so desperate, and they want Paul to stay. Don't leave, they say, because we love the Lord so much. This was written 50 to 52, uh, this happened in, in 50 to 52 A.D., that's when it happened. And 40 years later, this is what would be written in Revelation 2, verse 4, about the church in Ephesus. I hold, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. We, we have this love that, that we just think, oh, if I, it, I, it's just everything I want, and then somehow it just drifts away. And the church of fire is still in love. It still has a passion for Jesus Christ. The church of fire is so in love with Jesus Christ that they don't know what to do with themselves. Let's look at chapter 18. Let's look and see what it says. In chapter 18, verses 1 through 10, we, we ask this question, how vibrant is my passion? How vibrant, how, how living, how, how powerful is that passion for Jesus Christ. We're looking at the first 10 verses. Look at what it says. After this, after what? Well, he's been in Athens. He's been on Mars Hill. He's delivered, I think, one of the premier uh, sermons that we have recorded. 
on Mars Hill, and he leaves Athens. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Uh, again, just a little aside here. History tells us this is one of the times that Jesus Christ's name is, is outside of the Bible, is listed in history, because we have that edict, and it talks about that Claudius made all the Jews leave Rome because there was a division because some liked this Christos and some did not like Christos. And that's Christ. That's Jesus Christ. There was this disturbance over Christ. Go back uh, just before verse 3. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, that's what he did for a living before he became a rabbi or even while he was a rabbi, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is a Jewish idiom that we don't understand. The Jews, instead of saying, I'm going to knock the dust off my feet, they would shake out their cloak and they would say, I don't even want a speck of you left on me. I don't want any, any remnant of you. I'm done with you. Look at what it says in verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler and his entire household, believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Now get this. Things seem to be going very well. Things seem to be moving along in the right direction. Look at what happens in this vision, what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. You see, this is kind of the, the part of forsaking your first love, this is the part of your passion and your, the vibrancy of your love that kind of sneaks up on us. Because from all outward appearances, Paul is going along. I mean, we're over halfway through the book of Acts, and, and he's planted churches, and things are going well. He's, he's had this hearing on Mars Hill, and people have accepted the Lord. He goes to Corinth. People accept the Lord. In fact, the synagogue ruler moves next door. I, do you get that? I mean, the irony? I'm going to open a church next door to the synagogue, and it's going to be a Christian church. And, and the synagogue ruler comes with him as a part of that. He's the guy. He's the, over the house and grounds. It, it seems like everything's going well, except that the Lord has to stop and say to Paul, wait, wait, wait a second. What are you doing? What are you so afraid of? Because there's really three things that can kill our vibrancy of our passion. And here's the first one. It's three questions you need to ask yourself. What do I fear? What am I afraid of today? What do I fear? Paul went from the culture shock. We talked about the culture shock last week in Athens. This huge culture shock of the philosophies and all that was going on. He went from this culture shock to a moral shock. He went to Corinth. To act like a Corinthian, that phrase, to act like a Corinthian, was a synonym for immorality. If someone called you, you old dirty Corinthian, they were calling you a prostitute. I mean, the name became synonymous for that. In today's vernacular, it would be, 
What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. We know what the, the insinuation of that is, that something immoral, something that should not happen is going on in that city. And that's the way, that, that's the way we would look at it. And while Paul's ministry appears to be flourishing, while everything seems to be going the right direction, I mean, he's got Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila's name means eagle. He's sharp. He's, he's, he's of nobility, it appears. And Priscilla, from the, the Prisca family in Rome, probably was of nobility as well. And she's so sharp, she takes the lead and, and becomes a teacher in the church. I mean, this is a sharp couple. This is what every pastor wants to have somebody come into the church and grow and, and, and you realize that their leadership is there. And the Lord says, what are you so afraid of? Paul's got somebody to work alongside him as a tent maker and he's afraid. He's got this church that's opened and he's afraid. He's got people believing in Jesus Christ and he's afraid. Paul later wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Look at this next verse. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. I've shared with you before that I'm not a natural public speaker. In fact, some of you who come week after week would say, yeah, we know that, Pastor. We've got that part down. When I took a speech class in junior high, Alice Womack said, whatever you do, don't go into public speaking. Every Saturday night, I don't sleep well because I, I'm terrified of getting up in front of people and speaking. I have a natural fear of being in front of people. And so this is the least comfortable place I could possibly be. And yet the Lord said, no, what are you afraid of? I'm going to use you in spite of who you are, in spite of that. And what I have found is fear kills the passion. It kills the passion in, in any number of things, for life, for relationship, for purpose, our, our love for the Lord. Many, many years ago, I ran across a, a guy who gave me a hint, and you can take a, a full sheet of paper, just a blank sheet of paper like this, and across the top of it, you can write the word confident, confident or sure. And you can write it across the top, and then you can list off on the top everything that you're confident, everything that you're sure of. And then at the bottom, in small little letters, you can write fears. I mean, the top one, make it bold, make it all caps. And the bottom, you can put fears. And in the top, you can write everything that you're confident of. You know what that is, right? You say, well, I'm not very confident that I'm confident of anything. Go to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he restores my soul. He leads me by the waters. He, he, he feeds me. And, and all of these things from Psalm 23 you could write down. Or maybe you should go to Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe you should go to 1 Corinthians 15.55. You've been diagnosed with cancer or heart disease, and you know that death is imminent. And you can say there, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? You say, my greatest enemy is me. 1 John 4.4, greater is the one, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Or what we were singing about before, that song right before we did the welcome, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's Romans 8, 31. You can write all these things across the top of this, those things that you can be confident in the Lord, those things that you know are absolutely rock solid in your life. You can write those things down across the top. And then in small letters, you can write, okay, I, I failed in this case again. I, you know, I had to 
confess one more time to the Lord. Um, oh, and I was rejected by these people. You know, my, my mother never liked me. The Smothers Brothers, mom always liked you best. Oh, I lost a job. I, you know, I lost my job. Um, you know, I've got an illness. I've got death. You know, I can, I can write all these things. And then what you do is you take the bottom part of this and you just get rid of it. Because when you have the confidence in Jesus Christ, you don't need the fears. You don't have to live that way anymore. And your passion for Jesus Christ, when you begin to focus on what God can do in spite of you, your passion for Jesus Christ will begin to grow. And when I began to do that, and literally some Saturday nights as I'm looking over my message for the next day, I go back and I begin to go to those scriptures. And I don't know how many times I've read Romans 8. If God is for you, neither life nor death nor tribulation nor and you go on through all those things, those things can't come against you. What do I fear? Number two, what have I stopped doing? The second thing he says to them is in his vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. What have I stopped doing? We don't know that Paul actually stopped, but, but he was in danger of it. it. He was at the point where if, if the Lord didn't tell him to keep on, he was going to stop. The Jews opposed Paul. They became abusive, it says in verse 6. I mean, he's been there before. He's been stoned. He's been run out of town over and over again at this point. And, and it's just so easy to, to stop doing what you've been doing before. Paul may have felt like a, a football in an NFL game or a college game. So, uh, Steve was telling me some of the upsets yesterday in college football. I don't watch a lot of college football I just prefer to watch my teams in the NFL just get shellacked on a week-to-week basis. I mean, the Chiefs. The Kansas City Chiefs, I- I'm telling you, their strategy is they're going for a, a new great quarterback in the next uh, draft. I mean, if they can just lose the rest of the games. And they're doing well at that. But he didn't feel like the team. He felt like the football. Do you remember? How many of you remember Andy Griffith's old, old thing, what it was, was football? Do you remember that? This, this country boy stumbles into a college game for the first time, and he goes down and he sees this stand, and he sees these two groups of guys, and, and he said they were having this committee meeting, and then they started kicking this little, this little pig around, this little pig skin around. And sometimes don't you, don't you feel like the football? And you feel like the more success your team has, the worse it is on you. Have you thought about how the football must feel at the end of a game? Every time your team scores a touchdown, what do they do? Boom. Spike the ball. Oh. And Paul's going, that hurts. And then after they've spiked it, what do they do next to it? They kick it the whole length of the field. And Paul says, by the end of the game, I feel like I've just been, the more success I have, the more beaten up I am. And over time, it takes a toll. Paul may not have even realized where he was when the Lord stopped and said, do you understand God says, do you understand? Don't stop. You have to keep going. Sometimes we know what we need to do, but it just seems impossible. Paul would later write in Romans 7, 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Paul understood all too well what we understand in our life. Our passion begins to ebb and it begins to, it begins to drop and it begins to, to get harder and harder to do the things that you know you're supposed to do. And the Lord says, don't stop. Don't stop. And to do what the Lord asks sometimes requires risk. 
He asks us to be, to be the football. He asks us to be beaten and abused. He asks us to, to put ourselves out there where people will say, oh, you know, those Christians, they're all like that. And they begin to say things and they begin to do things, and, and it's painful. Paul was willing to risk. Paul moved next door to the synagogue. I, I, I just can't get over how ironic that is, to go next door. Of all the places that he could go, and again, if you knew the size of Corinth, Corinth is 750,000 people at the time that this is happening. It's huge. It's a metropolitan area. I mean, it's, it's gigantic by old world standards. There was only one city, Rome, that was bigger than Corinth at this point. Second largest city in the world. Paul is there, and of all the places God could have opened up, he opens up what? The next door, and he risked that. When's the last time you took a risk? When's the last time you took a risk? We stop doing what the Lord asks us to do because we play it safe. Yesterday, I, you know, Kathy's out of town, and so what I, she, what I do when she's out of town is I went for a long bike ride. That's typically what I do. It was a little cold yesterday to, to do a bike ride. And I was coming down this hill. I went up to, to Shasta Dam, and I was coming down the hill by Shasta Dam, and I was going 44 miles an hour, and I hit an acorn. And my tires were about, oh, you know, that, that wide. And the front wheel went, like that. And I thought, do not wreck, do not wreck, do not wreck. You do not want to make this phone call to Nashville to tell your wife that you're in the hospital. 44 miles an hour, an acorn is all I hit. And it was vibrating. And it finally, finally straightened out. And I got to the bottom. And I said, let's do that again. And so I did. And you say, you nutcase, what's wrong with you? I never felt more alive in my life than when the tears are streaming down your face and you're screaming down this hill. You just feel so alive. And you, and you say, well, I don't want to have to do that. Okay, then don't get on a bicycle. Tell your neighbor about Jesus Christ. Do something that just is so risky to you. Stand up in front of a Sunday school class like Rich did this morning. Take an assignment that you feel is beyond you. Give more than you can imagine. There's any number of things. You can risk doing something tremendous for the Lord. I'll never forget, we had, we had both extremes in our family. Jonathan, our youngest son, had no fear of anything. Get on a high dive, jump right off. Our daughter, Elizabeth, was just terrified of doing things like that. And she was on the low dive, and she said, Dad, it's just so far. I'm going to drown if I come. She swam like a fish. And I said, Liz, it's fine. And she said, how do I do it? And we counted to 10, and then we counted to 3, and then we counted downwards, 10, 9, 8. I mean, it was like launching pad. We did everything we could think of. And finally I said, Liz, lean way out over here. Listen to this. And she leaned far enough over that she lost her balance and fell on the pool. What I'm telling you is lean. If you, if you feel like you can't take the risk to jump off the diving board, if you can't do it, just lean far enough over that you don't have any choice. Step out for the Lord. Why have I stopped doing? And the third one is, where am I looking? Where am I looking? God reassured Paul that he was with him. He says, for I am with you. No one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people. He says, my people are in this city. You don't even realize that I've already set you up with some people to support you. Where are you looking? It's easy to look as if, uh, to live as if, God has forgotten you. It's easy to live as if the Lord has left us on our own. It's easy to live as if 
what we see is everything that we have. Paul was worried about some things that may or may not come to be. I, I love a story, and, and that's the way that a lot of us live. I love a story, a true story, Abraham Lincoln. He was confronted one time. Uh, they kept asking him, are we going to have a civil war? Is, is there going to be war? And uh, here's the story. When Lincoln was on his way to Washington to be inaugurated, he spent some time with Horace Greeley and told him an antidote that was meant to be an answer to the question that kept coming up about the Civil War. In his circuit riding days, Lincoln and his companions riding to the next session of court crossed many swollen rivers, but the Fox River was the largest in the area. It was still ahead of them, and they said to one another, if these streams, if these minor rivers give us so much trouble, how shall we get over the Fox River? When darkness fell, they stopped for the night at a log tavern where they fell in. Now get this, they're at a tavern. They meet a Methodist pastor there. They fell in with a Methodist pastor of the district who rode through the country in all kinds of weather, knew all about the Fox River. They gathered about him and asked him about the present state of the river. Oh, yes, replied the circuit-riding preacher. I know all about the Fox River. I've crossed it often and understood it well. But I have one fixed rule with regard to crossing the Fox River. Now get this. I never cross it till I reach it. I never cross it till I reach it. And we're trying to cross the river before we ever get there. We're trying to, to borrow trouble from tomorrow. And, and the Lord says, where are you looking? Are you looking at all the trouble or are you looking at what I have for you? God encouraged him to look encourage him to look to him and then the other things begin to fade away it reminds me of the story in the old testament in genesis chapter 33 jacob and esau have had this huge falling out jacob steals the the blessing he if you remember the story esau sold the blessing for some oatmeal and so Jacob feels like it's his to take, and when it's time to get the blessing, he disguises himself. He puts skins on the back of his arms because his brother is a hairy guy, and he's not. And, and his mother makes this uh, venison stew and brings it in, and the dad says, you don't sound like, my, like Esau. And Jacob says, oh, it's me, Dad. Here, feel my arm. And he feels this hairy, uh, and it's kind of weird. The guy's so hairy that a lamb skin feels like his brother. That's kind of sad. But he comes in and he steals the blessing from him. And Esau says, the next time I see you, I'll kill you. And years have passed. And Jacob's been gone and he's, and he's married two sisters, which is its own problem. But he marries the two sisters and he has these, these uh, also some maidservants and he has all these kids. And he hears that Esau's coming. And in Genesis 33, 1, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with four hundred men. Now, if you're Jacob, what do you think? Uh-oh. Because Jacob's got an entourage, but he knows that, that he's outpowered. And so look what he does. He divides the children among Re Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants. He has 12 children, and he, or 13, and he, and he divides them up. And what he's thinking is, is if Esau kills some of them, he won't kill all of them. I'm not going to lose all of my children. I mean, this is, a, this is a horrible thing. You know what's so horrible about it? It's the night after he wrestles with God. In chapter 32, if you go back and look at that, Jacob wrestles all night, and in the morning he says, he, he says, I've seen the face of God. He names the place Peniel, which means the face of God. I've seen the face of God, and God says, I'm going to bless you. Jacob knew the man was a, a theophany, a, an appearance of Christ before he came to be born of Mary. 
He's a theophany. It's Jesus Christ he's been wrestling with. He's been wrestling with this pre-incarnate bodily image of God, and he's wrestled with him, and he's going to limp for the rest of his life. And the next day, he's still looking at Esau. And you say, how could Jacob be that blind? How can we be that blind? We've missed it. God says, I'm going to bless those who I will bless, and I will curse those who I will curse. And he promised he'll never leave us and never forsake us, and we're, we're still wrestling with God and looking at the wrong things. Where am I looking? What do I fear? What have I stopped doing? Where am I looking? If you want your passion to be vibrant, answer those three questions and find out what the Lord would have you to do. Then look at the last part of this. Acts chapter 18, verses 11 through 28. How vigorous is my partnership with Jesus Christ? How vigorous is my partnership? It's not just a passion. It's, it's, a, it's working alongside. Look at verse 11. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. One of the longest times he stays anywhere is there in Corinth. And for a year and a half, and he teaches them. After the Lord appears to him, he does what he's supposed to do. Verse 12. While Gallio was, was proconsul of, of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into the court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, he's going to give his defense, Gallio says to the, the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Now get this next verse. This is a strange verse. Then they all turned on Sosthenes. Sosthenes takes over for Crispus as the synagogue ruler. Sosthenes, the, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. And so the new guy comes in and he gets beaten. And it, it appears that it's just this, that they just hate the Jews and they do this. Now go over to verse 24. In between verses 18 through 23, Paul travels 1,500 miles, and it lists a lot of locations. It's great stuff, but I want you to look at verse 24 and following. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. This is where Paul ends up in Ephesus and then goes on to Jerusalem, comes back to Ephesus. Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. And that's where you notice again, Priscilla's name is, is first. That never happens in Greek. The only way that that happens in Greek is if she somehow has taken the lead. And it appears that she's the one who does more of the teaching of Apollos even than, than Aquila. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. How vigorous is my partnership? Once our love is situated where it should be, then the way that we keep rekindling that love is to have a partnership. Number one, trust Christ explicitly. Trust, trust Christ explicitly. Explicit means so plain 
so distinct, nothing else can be inferred. Explicit means it's just the opposite of vague or equivocal or ambiguous. Explicit is absolutely everything is laid out. And we know that that's used in a, in a very negative context sometimes for explicit photos where, where there are photos of everything laid out there. But here the explicit that we want is for our soul to be bare before the Lord so that we can trust him in everything. God's clear when he speaks to us. We need to be clear when we trust him. Not vaguely or randomly. In all areas of life, at all times, regardless of circumstances, right? Are we supposed to try, trust Christ not vaguely or randomly in all areas of life, at all times, regardless of circumstances? Is that true? Are we supposed to trust him in every aspect, in every phase of our life, in every portion of our life? Did we this last week? We had an election. The day after election, I had a phone call. Pastor, we need to move out of the U.S. And I said, Joe Beck, you can't move. <laughs> Wasn't really. I'm just teasing. Here's a prediction that was made two days before the election. Ten things that this person predicted would happen and would be true the day after the election. Let me, let me read the prediction. He guaranteed that they would, all ten would come to pass, that all ten would be true. Number one, God would still be on the throne. Number two, Jesus is still the King of kings and Lord of lords. Number three, the Bible will still have all the answers to every problem. Number four, the tomb will still be empty. Number five, Jesus will still be the only way to heaven. Number six, prayer will still work. It will still make a difference. God will still answer prayer. Number seven, the cross, not our government, will still be our salvation. Number eight, there will still be room at the cross for all who need Jesus Christ. Number nine, Jesus will still save anyone who places their faith and trust in him. And number ten, God will still be with us always. He will never leave us or forsake us. That's the truth. And we get so bent out of shape sometimes and we're so sure that we have missed something. And the Lord says, don't you get it? I'm still on the throne. And we need to trust the Lord when it makes sense and when it doesn't make sense. We need to trust the Lord. You know what's interesting about this? This whole story of Gallio and Paul being brought in there, and Paul doesn't even get to speak, and, and Gallio says, wait a second, this is nonsense. This is nothing that the Roman government should have anything to do with. You know what's so amazing about that? Because of what Gallio did there, and we know, again, Gallio is the brother of Seneca. Seneca was the tutor of Nero. I mean, this guy came from a kind of a whacked-out family. And Gallio could easily have listened to this, could have put Paul in chains, could have thrown him already. In, in, but instead of that, for 12 years because of that, no Christian had any problem with Rome. And because of that, for 12 years, the church just exploded with growth. Paul could have thought, here I am, the Lord just promised me no one was going to harm me, and they've arrested me again, and they're dragging me before another magistrate. And the Lord says, Paul, I've got bigger plans. I'm going to set a precedent that will give the church the opportunity to grow. In the Old Testament, Saul went with 3,000 men to En Gedi. I've been there. I've, I've, I've hiked up into the caves of En Gedi. All kinds of hiding places. He goes with 3,000 men to find David. And Saul needed to relieve himself. And so he chooses the cave of all the caves. There's 6,000 caves in En Gedi. Of all the caves that Saul chooses, guess which cave he chooses? 
the one where David and his men are hiding in the back of the cave. And he has to go to the bathroom. How embarrassing is that? And you can see him saying to the 3,000, uh, I'm going to go in here for just a few minutes. You guys stand out here and you get, stand watch. And he goes in there. And what has he done? I mean, he's relieving himself. And while he's doing it, David sneaks up and cuts a corner of his robe off. And the men are going, David, this is your chance. Spear him. He doesn't have a weapon. Kill him. Take your knife. Take your sword. Take an arrow. Do this guy in. Look at what David says. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Do you trust the Lord enough to let the person who hates you go free and let the Lord take care of it? We need to trust him explicitly. Here's the last one. Train in Christ extensively. Not only to bear our souls, but to train extensively. The chapter closes with Priscilla and Aquila inviting Apollos. Apollos has gotten up and he's spoken. And what he knows about Jesus is correct. But he only knows up through the baptism of John. He knows what happened when Jesus came and and the Holy Spirit descended on him. And he's been accurate up to that point, but he doesn't know the rest of it. And Aquila and Priscilla hear him and they say, why don't you come over to our house today? We're going to have some food. And, And while they're there, they begin to instruct him and they begin to train him. And Apollos becomes... A mighty force. Later, when we read in, in, in Corinthians, Paul says some are of Paul, some of her are Apollos. Apollos has won hundreds, if not thousands, of people to Jesus Christ because he's trained extensively. He spoke with fervor, and, and literally that Greek word means it's like a pot boiling over. He spoke and he was so excited it just kept boiling over. And he vigorously defended the Lord, it says in verse 28. He refuted the Jews in public debate. One commentator called him logic on fire. It's important to know God's word, to know what you believe. How important is it? When we talked about stopping doing what we know we should do, we asked you to read through the the Bible this year. How many of you got certain distance and you stopped? And And you say, oh, don't make me feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm saying start where you left off. And you say, well, I can't possibly finish in the next six, seven weeks. I couldn't possibly finish reading through the whole Bible. Well, just start where you left off and and see how much you can read and, and read some every day. Because you need to be trained extensively in what the Lord wants us to do. Paul is writing to Timothy, this, this young man who shows up, who's ministering with him. He writes to him later. He becomes the, the pastor at Ephesus. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy. It says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. What matters? He's talking about knowing who Jesus Christ is. He's talking about learning the scriptures. He's talking about having those things just, just absolutely inundate him. Apollos had a teachable spirit. Do you understand in this chapter in Corinth, 750,000 people had a church that they'd never seen before. In Ephesus, a city of 500,000 people, two of the largest cities at that time, two commercial centers, east and west in that, in that region, all of a sudden they have churches because Paul has been faithful to his first love. How about you? You see, it's, we're to trust Jesus Christ with all of our heart. We're to 
to trust him and to believe in him. And what Jesus did on the cross is what you need because he died in your place, he died in my place. He paid for everything wrong we've ever done. But once we believe, we ought to know what we believe. We need to be trained. John Wesley is an amazing story. John Wesley was the son of a, of a pastor, Samuel Wesley. His mother was Susanna Wesley. He was one of many children. He very, had a very privileged upbringing. He graduated from uh, Oxford. He had a double professorship at, uh, at Lincoln College. Uh, I mean, that just blows my mind. He had two different professor, professorships. That means that he could teach two different areas. At Oxford, he was a group, in a group that the other students named the Holy Club because he, he was so adamant, so passionate about Jesus Christ. Everything he did, did showed that, that he was passionate about who the Lord was. And finally, he decided he was going to go to America and to go to the American Indians, the native Indians, and he was going to be a missionary. And he failed completely. John Wesley later wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Three years after he got back from being a missionary, on May 24, 1738, John Wesley wrote in his journal, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where they were reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ, something happened. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I realized I'd never trusted him. At that moment... I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me. He took away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death, all of the effort I had done to save myself. And this legalist, this mighty man of God, was transformed. I want to close with this. Because if you're going to recover your first love, it's going to become real in your life. I've mentioned several of the family members today. Elizabeth is our middle child, our only daughter. Elizabeth uh, Myrick and her husband Sam live in Austin, Texas. She has a blog that she writes on a regular basis. This last week would have been the birth of her third child. She lost a child, and she wrote a blog about it. She lost the child several months ago. When she miscarried, she had to have the baby in her womb for about a week before it finally came out, after it had died. The blog is called In All Things. Everywhere I've turned this past few weeks, I've run face first into a reminder that the spirit of gratitude requires more than simple list making. If I started with this piece uh, by Ann Voskamp, it started with this piece by Ann Voskamp, in which she speaks of giving thanks as a means of healing a broken spirit and says, praying continually, this thanks in all things. This is what fulfills the commanding ache for joy always. Thanks to God is what calms the wild heart. Anger makes us sick and weak and bound, and the therapy is in the thanks. And reading it, I realize the requirement is not finding something to be grateful for even in the times of grief or fear. The requirement is giving thanks in all things, for all things, accepting everything as a gift, the loss, the sickness, the, the death, all of it. 
This is not a picture of gratitude I was expecting emerge from this month of giving thanks. See, I was looking for an essay prescription. Take two of these and call me in the morning. The last thing I expected was to learn that instead of turning away from the disappointment and the frustration and the heartache, I was supposed to look them square in the eye and give thanks for them. Not what I had in mind, thank you very much. I was hoping that by looking at the rosy side of things, by diligently writing down the pretty images I came across throughout the week, I would hardly notice the pile of disaster lurking over in the corner. This weekend I was on a retreat, and wouldn't you know it was if the speaker, wouldn't you know it, the speaker told us about finding joy by cultivating a spirit of gratitude. And she went right on to talk about maintaining that joy and the gratitude through trials. It seems as if I'm to have this message pounding into my head, like it or not. In between the sessions, I went for a run. We were out in the Texas Hill Country, and, and the November afternoon was, was pushing 80 degrees. And though I told myself I wouldn't dwell on it, I couldn't help but remember it was the day before the due date I was given for the child that we lost this spring. I decided I would outrun that pain of that loss right then and there, and then I would bury it out there, pounding it into the gravel of the trail with my shoes. I'm out of shape these days, so I would sprint as hard as I could until I thought my lungs were going to explode, and then I would drop back into a walk. After the first two or three of these sprints, I was crying hard, gasping for air, and sobbing so loud I prayed I wouldn't run into anyone else on that trail. It felt good, cathartic, final. And on my way back to the cabin, all the fight gone out of me, I asked myself quietly whether I could be thankful for that loss. Not thankful despite it. Thankful for it. Out there, the answer was so clear. Yes. I can be thankful even for that, for the joy the pregnancy brought me, for the look in Sam's eyes when we saw the heartbeat grainy and faint on the monitor the first time, for the way I've grown through this experience, this trying and getting and losing and trying and not getting and waiting and wondering and despairing and then hoping again. I can be grateful even for something that stings as mightily as this does. I was thinking of that morning, that moment this morning, driving into a fog. The landscape was muddled and hidden and mysterious, but in my mind, I was back there under the clear afternoon sky, gravel crunching beneath my shoes, the muscles in my thighs burning, asking myself if I could be grateful and finding that I could somehow be grateful even for the heartache. Could it be that simple? Could I just choose to be grateful in all things? Is it possible that this rich, visceral kind of gratitude can simply be opted into? Outside my window, the fog was devouring cars one by one, coming for me and, and yet never reaching me. I began to see the fog like a hollow monster, something that looms so large can be sliced right through. And I wondered, is that what a grateful heart can do? Cut right through fear and sadness? And beneath my hands, the steering wheel hummed. And outside my headlights scratched on the wall of mist. I said thanks for everything I saw and felt and thought. And it all became an unbroken prayer. A whispered javelin hurled at the veil of mist around me. After I read this, I called my daughter. And we cried. And I told her what I was speaking on and asked her if I could use that. And she said, yeah, Pop. Yeah, Dad, because I found my first love. Father, you know the people that have come here today that hear this. And you know the pain that they have endured, the loss they've suffered. 
those things that have come into their life that are so private and personal and visceral, those things that seem to be beyond what they can talk about or think about. And what Liz has put into words today helps us understand that when we trust you and love you, and in the everyday things of life are trained by you, we'll never lose that passion and that partnership. Father, take away our fears. Propel us into motion. Help us to look at you, to trust you, to love you, to learn of you. Father, I, I pray for anyone here that may not know who you are. They've never really trusted. They're like John Wesley going through the motions, and they need you so desperately. So today, Father, help them make that choice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.